Worthy is the Lamb. Worthy is the Lamb. That is good work. As mentioned, my name is Michael. Um, it's it's really my pleasure to be able to preach before you all this morning. Um, my sister, she prayed that we'd be transformed by what I had to bring. I hope you're not. I'm a mess. I can't wait to see my counselor tomorrow. I hope you are transformed by what God has brought. And I hope to be a helpful vessel for bringing that, but please don't allow my missteps, my jokes that don't land, to be the thing that transform me. Be transformed by God's word. We're going to pray right now. Heavenly Father, would you open our eyes to see, open our ears to hear, bless our minds to understand, and soften our hearts, that we would hear from your word and receive it. That as we think about our holy God, who is merciful and mighty, who is fearsome and powerful, God, that we would lean towards you, that we would not run away, but that we would recognize that you are holy, 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 worthy to be praised, and there's great joy in praising you. It's in Jesus' name we ask for these things. Amen. All right. If you would, take out your phones, turn on your Bible, or open up your Bible, if you're still going that route. We're going to be looking at Leviticus chapter 9. And if you're visiting with us today, you're actually catching us as we're in the middle of a series entitled The Fear of the Lord. And each week in this series, we have, we will continue to consider the multifaceted meaning and implications of what it means to fear God. And before we jump in and start reading, I want you to think about some of your favorite qualities of God. Think of the reasons you consider him worthy of your praise. Does fear enter that list? Does his fearsomeness enter that list? Because the Bible has a lot to say about fear, and it would be understandable if fear didn't enter that list. It would be understandable. Because the Bible does say things like this in 1 John chapter 4, verse 18. Perfect love casts out fear. And so you may have the feeling, why would I have fear if I love a perfect God who gives me perfect love that casts out fear. Well, at the same time, one of the verses we already read this morning, coming out of Psalm 147, says, but the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him, in those who hope in his steadfast love. And so as we consider, what should my feeling be about fear as it relates to God? Like all things, Context matters. Context matters. And so here's one of the questions we should be thinking about. What is the fear that God casts out of us? Because he does cast a kind of fear out of us. But there's also a kind of fear that ought to remain and increase in those who come near to him. And what we'll see today 
I hope through scripture is that in order to enjoy living in God's presence, we must have a proper fear of him. We must have a proper fear of him. Because as we get close to God, there is a kind of fear that he, he passes out of us, that he casts out of us, the fear of being judged and punished. But God's character does not change. He remains a fearsome God, even for those who are near to him. And so, as we read from everyone's favorite book, Leviticus, I hope you're able to see God's fearsomeness, but rejoice. But rejoice. So again, we're in Leviticus chapter 9. We're going to be starting in verse 22 and going into chapter 10 and stopping at verse 3. Leviticus 9, chapter, chapter 9, verse 22. Then Aaron, who's the high priest, lifted up his hands toward the people and blessed them and came down from offering the sin offering and the burnt offering and the peace offerings. And Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting. And when they came out, they blessed the people. And the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar. And when the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. Now, Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, so the sons of the high priest, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them. And they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, his brother, after his sons had died, this is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron, whose sons had just died, held his peace. And the church said, ugh. Ugh. That was uncomfortable. I mean, amen that y'all said amen, but for me, that was uncomfortable. Here we have animals and animal fat burning up. The Lord's presence coming, fire lashing out as though it had cognition, and two men dying. It's okay to admit when what you read in scripture is uncomfortable. There's a chance, maybe, it ought to make you uncomfortable. Because uncomfortable things often make us ask, why, Lord? Why is this the way you handle this situation? Why, Lord, why is this the way you showed yourself to us? I mean, I had to preach out of Leviticus. The title of my sermon that I was given my, is, But You Shall Fear Your God. And so, you probably know from the start, this ain't going to be one of them fun, funny sermons, given how it started. But I do hope it's a sermon that leads you to joy. I hope it's a sermon that leads you to joy because if you're like me and this makes you uncomfortable, that's okay. It's okay to acknowledge that. But what I would ask 
because God is not embarrassed to share the story about himself, is that you would take your discomfort, keep it with you, but sit in the seat next to you and allow yourself to hear what God has to say. Because if God is not afraid to share these things about himself, I think we owe it to him to listen. And as I've leaned into, and hopefully listened well to this scripture, there's a couple of things I've seen. One is that we're not just seeing an angry God. We're not just seeing an angry God. We're also seeing a God who loves his people. A God who desires to be with his people. And we're also seeing, believe it or not, God's people enjoying him. But context matters. So where and why do I see those things in a passage like this? That's what we're going to be exploring through the rest of the time this morning. So if you're the note-taking type, I have three points in the sermon. Point number one, a reason to fear God. A reason to fear God. Point two, a people who fear God. And point three, a high priest who fears God. And I'll repeat those as we go throughout. But let's start with point one, a reason to fear God. Now, unless you're particularly familiar with the first five books of the Bible, which are called the Torah, again, some of the things that we just read and will read likely sounded odd. We've already mentioned some of them. God's presence manifesting itself visibly. I've never experienced that. Fire that can choose its targets. I've never experienced that. Animals and animal fat burning on an altar. I've never experienced that. But these things, odd though they are, and uncomfortable though they are, are actually necessary things for God to dwell with his people. And so I want to help us to gain some of the context of what led us to a point in history where this is the way God is interacting with his people. And to do that, we're going to go on a quick little journey through the story of the Bible so far. So, book one, Genesis. Humans are created, live in the Garden of Eden, in God's perfect presence, and at peace with God. But we fell away. We rebelled. We, we decided that we know better than God, and God decided, well, I can escort you out. If my presence isn't what you want, and so he did. But God, being merciful, kind, and loving, chose a people within humanity and determined that he would use those people to bring other people back to him. But those people eventually found themselves in a bit of a predicament. They became enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. Book two, the Exodus. After the people are enslaved, the Lord rescues his people out of Egypt, out of slavery. Hallelujah. Those people are the same sinful people that rebelled in the first place. So they act the same way that rebellious people act. They grumbled against God. They continued to rebel against God and act as though they knew better than God. But again, God being merciful, kind, and loving, made a way for them to exist peacefully in his presence, to exist in a manner that resembled what the Garden of Eden was like. 
So he told them, build a tent, put guard and imagery on that tent. My presence will be in that tent and you can live in peace with me. But unlike the Garden of Eden, those people are still sinful. These people are sinful. When they existed in Eden, they had no sin. They were cast out because of sin. So when we get to Leviticus book three, we're left with the question, how can sinful people live peacefully with the holy God, that they are prone to rebel against, that they're going to continue to sin against? How can that happen? In Leviticus is a long, at times uncomfortable, at times, dare I say boring, exploration of how God has made a way for people in the Old Testament to live at peace with him. And so, underneath some of the sacrifices, the purity rituals, the ways God is telling these people to live in a manner that's unique, God is helping them to, to live peacefully with him. And a common refrain that he says is, do this in order that you might be holy as I am holy. Because at this point, they are very much unholy, unlike God. And in order to live peacefully with God, they have to move closer, nearer, become more like him. When it comes to becoming like someone, being near to them helps. So many of you saw, my dad is here. He's not my biological father, but he is the father that I've known and lived with the longest. And so I've been near to him. Over time, I've become a little bit more like him. That's one of the consequences of presence and nearness to someone. And so you don't have to be bald to, to be near God, but you know, if that helps you. But the thing is, when we get to ex or when we get to Leviticus, it would help us in having context for the story we just read of God killing people to understand the context that led them there. Because Leviticus almost didn't happen. Leviticus, the, the method, the structure, the system that God created for people to live peacefully with them almost didn't happen. And that's what we're going to read about. Open up to Exodus chapter 33. We're going to get some context for this story that we just read. And as we read from Exodus chapter 33, we're going to see before the laws were given, before the tent was built, before the Israelites enter the promised land, God nearly sends them on their way without them. And we're going to think about the reasoning God uses for saying, you all go ahead, go ahead without them. So Exodus chapter 33, starting in verse 2. This is God speaking. He says, I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go among you, lest I consume you on the way. For you are a stiff-necked people. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, 
are stiff-necked. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now, take off your ornaments, that I may know what to do with Did you catch that? Again, we're thinking about how did we get to Leviticus? Here, before the people build the tent and receive the laws, God makes it clear, I can't come among y'all. I mean, let me, let me rephrase what he says. He says, I'll give you what I promise. I have determined to use you. And so you'll get land, prosperity, victory over your enemies. I'll send an angel as a, sac- as a chaperone. You have my permission to go ahead without me. Because I can't come with you. You would be safer if I didn't come with you. You would be safer if I did not come with you, because if I did, I would consume you. That's what God is trying to help Moses see. It's that unrepentant sinners have a reason to fear God. Unrepentant sinners have a reason to fear God. And point one is a reason to fear God. We're actually going to be looking at two parts of that. Two different reasons. And the reason that applies to you depends on your relationship with God. Unrepentant sinners have a reason to fear God, and it's not a good one. It's because God will consume you. And as we consider that, we consider that undesirable fear, we can appreciate as God moves them in to the the Levitical system with the priests and the laws, that one of the things God has to reconcile is how not to consume these unrepentant sinners. So that's what we're looking at. But, but the reason God gets to that point is because after hearing this, we get something surprising. Look back at verse 4. Mind you, these people up to this point had constantly rebelled against God. We've gotten into the habit of expecting them to rebel against God. But after hearing this, they say, or the Bible says, verse 4, when the people heard this disastrous word, this disastrous word, they mourn. This is surprising if you're familiar with the biblical story up until this point. Seeing the people of God actually acknowledge what God says about them is true, to actually mourn that they're not in the right relationship with him, this is surprising. And it's surprising because the word they just heard starts off very good. I mean, where's the disaster? I'll give you land. I'll send an angel. I'll drive out your enemies. The land will be overflowing. It'll be prosperous. How many of us would accept that? If God gave you permission, I'll give you these things that you want. I'm just not going to come. How many of us would accept that? Prosperity? Land? Success? Victory? It's surprising, and, and, and we're blessed to read that the Israelites actually recognize that's not that's not prosperity. Having those things without God's presence is not prosperity. And so these people 
who have a sinful fear of God recognize that if being in danger is the only means to come close to God, then so be it. Then so be it. There's a kind of faith they're expressing. I mean, it doesn't say that they have faith here, but if God says, if I come among you for a moment, I'll consume you. And they say later in this chapter, Moses, ask him to come. They're showing, we believe God can make a way out of no way. We believe God can make a way out of no way. And, and they determine, we know that it's more worth it to be with God than in the promised land without God. God, would you come? God, would you come? We want to enjoy you. But they also recognize that God isn't going to change. He's not going to become less fearsome. His requirement to be holy isn't going to diminish. And so that even in enjoying God, they're going to fear God, which is the second part of point number one. Enjoying God is a reason to fear God. So let's pause for a second, unpack what we've laid out so far. Point number one, a reason to fear God. Point one A, unrepentant sinners have a reason to fear God, but this is the fear that God casts out of those whom he has accepted. And I do want to make that point very clear. There is fear that God casts out of us. And it's the, the kind of fear that would cause us to run away, which is the option that the, Levitic, that the people before Leviticus had to say, okay, God, you're so frightening. You're, you're so powerful that you'll consume us, okay, we'll go away from you. That's sinful fear. Point 1B, enjoying God is a reason to fear God. This is the kind of fear that is required to enjoy God. This kind of fear acknowledges, God, you are who you are, and I want to be with you. And, and so there is a kind of fear that is actually required to enjoy God's presence. There's a kind of fear that's required to enjoy God's presence. Turn back over to Leviticus chapter nine. What we're gonna try to do is embrace God as we think about and meditate on the scripture, to, to embrace God in the fullness of who he is, not merely who we wish God was, but who he is. And I'm convinced that when we re-read this, we'll see two things, at least two things. One, there is great joy in the presence of God. And clearly, there's great joy in the presence of God, y'all. There's also great fear in the presence of God. That doesn't change because you're joyful. Because God doesn't change. God is unlike you. He's holy. You're not. You're not holy. Even though, amen, Christ has died for you. In and of yourself, you're not holy. God is still different. He's making you like him, but you're not holy. God is still who he is. He was frightening before you were saved. He's still frightening. But he's welcomed you. And he's welcomed you to enjoy him for all of who he is. For all of who he is. Which brings us to point two. 
A people who fear God. A people who fear God. As we mentioned, Leviticus is trying to answer the question how a sinful people can live peacefully with God. And if we were to take the time, which we won't, I did take the time prior to hearing the sermon, though, to read all of Leviticus. It helps if you're standing, because it can be a difficult one to get through. And thank you later. We're not going to spend a whole lot of time talking about the individual laws, about the process of how to kill an animal, and sacrifice it. That's homework y'all can do on your own. But what we are going to consider is how God determined that these things are necessary in order to live peacefully. Because, and, and this may help as you go and read Leviticus again, or for the first time. The things you're reading are an example of God's grace. Let me explain. Let's jump back in to Leviticus chapter 9. And this time, here's what we're going to do. Bear in mind, these are the same people that God already communicated with. I would consume you if I came in your presence. And we're going to stop before Nadab and Abihu are killed. So the people know God is holy. They are not. They should fear being consumed. And then this happens. Verse 22, chapter 9. Then Aaron lifted up his hands toward God, or towards the people, and blessed them. He came down from offering the sin offering, and the burnt offering, and the peace offerings. And Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting. When they came out, they blessed the people, and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed not the people, but the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. Now, we know what's going to come. We know in two verses, two men are going to die. But up until this point, what disastrous word have we heard? Why would we assume that the people are shouting and falling on their faces in fear, in fear alone? Are not the things that we just read reasons to rejoice? God's presence has come down. Fire has come out and it has not consumed the people. The very thing God said he would do if he came among them. The system he set up is working. God has made a way for the people to live peacefully with him. And so that when his wrath comes out, it goes on to the offerings. It does not consume the people. It consumes the offerings. This is a reason to rejoice. This is a reason to shout out and fall on your knees and fall on your face saying, hallelujah, Lord. Thank you for making a way for us. It's also a reason to be afraid because you're getting an example. There's a reason he uses animals. We are different than animals, amen. But when you see an animal die, your heart goes out. When you see an animal dying and being burned up that you know is standing in your place, your heart should go out. Recognizing that this is the way God is bringing me here to him. Something had to die. And it wasn't me. Someone had to die. 
it wasn't you. We're going to get to that. We're going to talk about it. But what I want to do first is, guys, we have a category for understanding enjoyment that requires fear. Some people call it extreme sports. I call it extreme sports. But, but, but really, think about it. Here's a category and a list of things. Skydiving, drag racing, rock climbing, cliff jumping, zip lining, bullfighting. Have no desire to do that, but many people do. Shark cage diving is a thing people do. Roller coasters. Maybe that's not your thing. How many of you enjoy watching a thunderstorm? I mean, these are things that are frightening that we enjoy because they're frightening. It's not a perfect analogy, but it hopefully gives you some something to grasp onto of recognizing I can love a God that I fear. We love so many things that we fear. Who wants to go shark cage diving when it's not scary? The reason you Instagram about it is because it's frightening. The reason you drag race is because you get that adrenaline rush of driving fast and then do it on the track, not on the highway. <laughs> But we do have categories for things. Watching a thunderstorm, this is terrifying. But it would be less enjoyable if it wasn't in some way fear producing. It would be less enjoyable. God also would be less enjoyable if he was not fearsome, even to those who are near to him. The difference is God would be less enjoyable because he would be less God. God does not change because his fierceness makes us uncomfortable. It doesn't. And so as we continue reading, get into the icky part. Remember that God is worthy of praise. God is merciful. He's just shown himself to be merciful. That has not changed. But like he forewarned, he's fearsome. It's different. He is a consuming fire. And we're about to see that when it's not the offerings that are consumed, there's another outcome. Or chapter 10, Leviticus. Now, Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer, put the fire in it, laid incense on it, and offered unauthorized fire for the Lord. Unauthorized fire for the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died for the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified, and before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. When we see Nadab and Abihu bringing unauthorized fire, we should be reminded of what we just read. It almost certainly didn't happen. Boom, boom. Chapter 9 ends. Chapter 10 started. The Bible was written intentionally. It's trying to draw connections. So let's look. Chapter 9. What did we just read? And what does the author know we just read? 
chapter 9, verse 24. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed. Pause. Chapter 10, verse 2. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed. Okay, there are two things happening. But it's starting the same. Chapter 9, fire comes out, consumes offerings. People rejoice. Fear. People fall on faces. What happened in chapter 10? Fire came out. Same. Fire consumes. Same. The offering that's available is unauthorized. There's been a breach in the contract that I've been setting up to ensure I don't consume you. You bring unauthorized offerings? That's what we're doing now? I I told y'all, if for one instant I came into your presence without a mediator between us, something's going down that you're not going to enjoy. God does not need assistance determining what sacrifice is sufficient to cover our sins. I'll read that one again. God, the Lord, who knows all things, does not need your assistance determining what sacrifice is sufficient to cover your sins. If he says, this is the sacrifice that I require, don't bring anything else, what should you not do? You should not bring another cool thing that God will sacrifice. Here's what I was thinking. We can improve upon it if we bring this different type of fire, put the incense on that fire. I'm still worshiping God. Right? Aren't they? Come on. They're they're not idol worshiping. They're not committing sin. They're just worshiping God. It's in a way that improves upon what God has done. Suggesting that the God who will be sanctified and will be glorified did not do a good enough job setting up the system to help rebellious people who from Eden thought they knew better than God. Do do you see what's going on? God says, verse 3, in Leviticus chapter 10, well, this is Moses quoting God. This is what the Lord has said. Pause. This is Moses' response to his brother after his sons were killed. This is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. There's a way to read this that sounds really callous. Moses' nephews just got killed. And we didn't even get to the part where God commands Aaron, we're not allowed to mourn. You're going to stay doing your responsibility as the high priest. We'll have other people grab your sons by their coats, take them out of the camp. But Aaron, you don't get the opportunity as the high priest as the mediator between God and men to mourn right now because you have other responsibilities. You, of all people, Aaron, this is what Moses is trying to help you see. It's not that Moses is callous, but Aaron, we have a responsibility. You're the high priest. You have a responsibility. 
before all the people, God will be glorified and sanctified. Your sons thought they could improve upon what God had done. They're priests. When you die, one of them will be the high priest. Trying to improve upon what God has done? How are they going to do that? And let God's word be true, of being sanctified and glorified. The main tragedy in this story is not that two men were killed. It's not. And I would love at this point to pause, say something reassuring, make God seem less severe. But God does not make an excuse for why his severity was warranted. He doesn't make that excuse to Aaron, the person who of all people ought to feel some type of way. He simply sends a servant to tell him, I'm not unmerciful. You've just seen for the last nine chapters that I'm providing a way. This is what I told you would happen. The main tragedy here is that two priests of God presume that they can improve upon what God has offered or they were told them to offer. The main tragedy is that God said, I will be sanctified, and they said, or not. Or let's, let's give them more credit than that. They said, we'll help. To God, he's not seeing the difference. And it's not because he's incapable. It's because he's God. He doesn't need our assistance determining what sacrifice is sufficient. The sacrifices serve a purpose. The sacrifices are consumed so that we aren't consumed because we deserve to be consumed. What happens to them is justice. It's sad. It's okay to be sad. It's okay to be uncomfortable. But if you go into this demanding God to make excuses for, your, for him, you're going to be disappointed. God has established from Genesis. All y'all deserve that. Every one of you, even the little ones. Uncomfortable stories that we have to tell people deserve to be consumed. But I've made a way. Don't question my mercy when what I told you would happen happens. And when you try to improve on the way that I gave you. So Moses speaks to Aaron, who's the high priest. And as we already talked about, the responsibilities of the high priest are to stand between God and men. Later in Leviticus, in chapter 16, we would read about the high priest's most, res most important responsibility, and that's the Day of Atonement. Um, actually, if you could, turn over to Hebrews chapter 9. While you do that, while I do that, I'll explain a little bit. So the Day of Atonement is the one day a year that the high priest and only the high priest goes into the tent that God has made to resemble the tent. Normally, they're not allowed to go past a certain point because behind one curtain, there's a place called the Holy of Holies. And that's a place where God's presence is uniquely um, available. And if you go there in an improper way, you'll be consumed. 
But once a year, the high priest goes and before going in to atone for the sins of the people, first atones for his own sins. So I say all that to say, before we transition to the New Testament and look at Jesus, there is good news in Leviticus. There is a glimpse of the gospel. You see the themes of atonement and a mediator standing between God and men there. But it is imperfect. It is only a shadow. So in Hebrews chapter 9, what we're going to do is we're going to read about Christ, who is, in Hebrews in particular, is put forward as the high priest who fears God, which is point three, a high priest who fears God. That's what we see we need when we see things in the Old Testament, particularly in Leviticus, where high priests and their sons Amen for the work that they did. But let's say they were a good high priest. Eventually they died. Someone else would come along. Even in Leviticus, when God has made a way, he's hinting at there is a better way. And, and that way is going to come. For us, it has. We're going to read a little bit about it in Hebrews chapter 9. So you can close. Starting in verse 4. For Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy place every year with not his own, or every year with blood not his own. For then he, Jesus, would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it was appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. What we're seeing here. And what the author is assuming of us is an understanding of how it used to be before Christ. And, and what it used to be was repeated offerings, which were intended to remind the people that God has made a way, but you're going to be reminded that you still deserve to be consumed year after year. When we get to the gospel and Jesus is our high priest, there is an important distinction. God wanted the people to remember their sins and how they hung over them year after year and relied on the high priest to be the one to present the offering that atoned for them. So as we consider fear and consider Christ, there's an important distinction. Believers, Christ has made the sacrifice once for all. You don't need to be like the Israelites, reminded of your sin daily. Reminded of your sin year after year. Allow the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit to be done, but Christ has provided a sufficient sacrifice. Like the burnt offering, Jesus was consumed on the cross. He was the sacrifice. And we know he was accepted because unlike Nadab and Abihu, he didn't remain dead. Three days later, Jesus rose from the grave. 
This sacrifice was consumed, took the wrath of God that God said we all deserve and suffered the consequences. He was consumed. But he showed his power over death, hell, and the grave by rising, presenting himself as the sacrifice he trusted in. That's the good news we're telling people. The good news we're telling people is that you deserve to be consumed. That should make them uncomfortable. You need a way. You can't provide that way on your own. But God has provided. And it wasn't in a pleasant way. It required death. It required blood. But it gives you hope. So for all of those, all of us, acknowledge God, the sacrifice you provided in Jesus is sufficient. I will trust in it. I will acknowledge I deserved it. But I will accept the offering that you presented. That is the way to salvation. That is the good news that we have to offer. And I hope we wouldn't be intimidated to present it because we have to acknowledge that God is worthy of fear in order to do so. Because if we don't acknowledge that, they'll never get to enjoy. We will never get to enjoy. So as we conclude, I want to just acknowledge, you don't have to accept him. You could hear that. You could see this. And you could refuse. That's an option. So let's suppose that's the option you take. Let's suppose you say, cool. Appreciate that he did that, but I'm good. Or appreciate that he did that. I got a couple of tweaks I want to make to it. There's some good works I think I have to provide in order to make that sacrifice sufficient. Let's remember again what we read. Fire came down. Some people fell on their faces and rejoiced. Fire came again, which I think we're assuming is the same fire. There is fire. It will lead some to rejoice. It will lead some to death. Everyone will bow down. Everyone will bow down. The scripture doesn't say it, but I'm assuming fire comes out, strikes you, you shout and fall on your face. The people did that and lived. Nadab and Abihu almost certainly shouted, fell on their face. They did not. Don't let that be you. God is worthy of fear. Allow him to drive out the fear that is frightened of his judgment by accepting Christ, acknowledging God for who he is, acknowledging yourself for who you are, and saying, God, I will fearfully worship and enjoy you. Because that's the only way to enjoy God's presence. In one way or another, you shall fear your God. Let's pray. Father, there are times when we do not enjoy thinking about your holiness. But as much as your holiness intimidates us, God, we can think of nothing worse than if you were not holy. That if you were not concerned with justice, you were not concerned with sin. God, we thank you for being precisely who you are. 
precisely as merciful and loving and gracious as you are, and precisely as terrifying and fearful as you are. God, we, we thank you for being you. We worship and praise you. God, would you strike fear in the hearts of unbelievers so that they might see their need for an offering sufficient for their salvation? And would you help them to see that it is Christ and Him alone? God, would you strike fear in the heart of believers that we would see accurately and worship and enjoy it? We ask these things in the name of the only sacrifice that is sufficient for covering our sins. Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.